0: Today's episode is with another creative genius that I've had the opportunity to meet in my life. So this episode is with my friend, Neil Johnson. And the way that Neil and I met, you'll hear this a little bit in our conversation, was we have been on the same team at A21 for about the last two-ish years. And so my story is that I showed up in California in August of 2019 as a volunteer for A21, which is an anti-human trafficking organization. And I started off in our Southern California office as a volunteer working with our restore director and kind of in some of the aftercare that we do with survivors and curriculums and things like that. And then I was also helping out with Propel Women, which is more of a leadership ministry for women across the world. And that was my start at A21, and then from there, Scott and I moved to Texas, where I joined the Texas team full time as a digital media coordinator for the comms team. And essentially what that means is that I was project managing a lot of the things that would come through for the comms team, whether that was our annual freedom report, which would highlight all of the work that we had done, if it was creating translated subtitles for different videos, or if it was just helping move print pieces across the finish line. My job was just to help coordinate all the details that would surround those projects, and Neil's job was as the creative genius behind them. So in my couple of years being on the comms team with Neil, I got to see firsthand just how brilliant his mind is and just the way that he sees the world and even problems of injustice and solutions to those injustices and hope in the way that he tells stories, it just absolutely blew my mind. And not only that, but he and his wife, Shannon, became really dear friends to Scott and I, so much so that when we left Texas, that was really one of the harder things to transition from was getting to be in their life every day and at least on a weekly basis. And so you are going to hear Neil talk about just the way that he approaches storytelling, the way that he approaches content creation, the way that he navigates telling hard stories. And even if you're not necessarily the artistic or creative type, I think that you're going to find yourself so inspired by this conversation, as well as you're going to hear how so seamlessly Neil slips into telling his own stories in such a beautiful way. And so I am just so excited, again, as always, for you guys to get to know someone that I cherish and that I admire and that inspires me to tell my own stories in a really compelling way. So here is my brilliant friend, Neil Johnson. Okay, Neil, you are one of the most creative people I know. I have written that. I have said that. Let it be known that I think that that is true. Did that always, was that always a part of your life? Like, when did you know that you were creative and that telling stories was going to be a part of your lifestyle?
1: Hi, yes. Well, thanks for having me on. And I think that's a great question to start. I mean, um... I guess for me, I've always had an interest in creativity and just making things and how things are made. I, some of my earliest memories in sort of the film video world, um, since that's kind of the space and area that I work in now, are really, my parents had an old, like one of those VHS cameras, like, you know, those massive Mm -hmm. ones that take the big (laughs) old like VHS tape. (laughs) So one of those, and I would go out and I would start filming things around the house or like just looking for something interesting. But then there was no way really to edit it outside of using two actual like VS, VCR players. Mm-hmm. And so basically what I did is I'd like go and I'd film some stuff and then I'd take that VHS tape, i put it into one of the VCR players and I would like play it till the point where I wanted it to start. And I'd hit pause and then I'd route that into the other VHS player, which was sort of like, this is my old school editing, right? That um, is
0: nuts. I cannot believe that you were doing editing on VHS.
1: <laughs> yeah. So just like hit record, hit play, um, at the same time, like play the clip out as long as I want it to be, hit pause, fast forward to the next part. And literally like, so I guess you could say I've been editing since VHS, but, uh, um, after that, I kind of went straight into um, sort of the digital age and, you know, had a little point-and-shoot camera that shot in, like, 360p, which is, like, terrible quality. But it was enough to start making, like, home videos and, you know, messing around. Like, one of my first clips, I think it was called Stunts 101. And Essentially, we just did a bunch of stuff in reverse. So we'd jump off a wall backwards, and then we'd reverse it so it looks like we can jump super tall or super high and uh, just fun things like that. So I don't know. It's always been a... a like a passion. It's been something that I've just always enjoyed. And um, I guess I get paid to do it now, which is the best part.
0: Yeah. I mean, that is pretty wild that your editing started in the VHS days. Cause I think we all kind of took our try at like creation, content creation and video editing with like, um, it was called like picnic. And we had like those tiny little digital cameras and everything like that. But it's cool that your story even predates that. And if I remember correctly, you grew up in the Dominican. Were you there most of your childhood or just off and on? Like where were you at when you were doing some of these projects?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, well, that's a great question because when people ask me where I'm from, it's always like, well, there's a short answer of like where I live now. And then mm-hmm. like the longer answer of where I come from. But essentially my parents are missionaries. So I was born in Guatemala, um, was there until I was three years old. Then they moved to the Dominican Republic, which is where I spent the majority of my you know childhood. However, as a missionary family, we did a ton of travel. And so I can't remember if it's seven or eight years, but seven or eight years in a row, every year on my birthday, I was in a different country. Wow. Um, So definitely got a taste for travel and, you know, kind of always being somewhere different all of the time. And so I think that's a lot of where like some of my fascination began with um, people's stories and the world that we live in simply because I was exposed to so much of it at such an early age. So I spent uh, most of my life in the Dominican Republic, but my parents are actually from Michigan and Indiana. And so we'd come back to the States for maybe like a month out of the year to raise support and visit family and friends and kind of all of that. But uh, my childhood and yeah, all of the, the creating these videos and stuff happened mostly in the Dominican Republic.
0: Wow, yeah, I know that Yeah, your history and kind of if you were like tracked in your life of all the places you've been is all around the world. And then even in recent years, I know that you've gotten to do a lot of work in different areas and with different teams, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I know that you mentioned even with creating content, you do that, you are paid to do that now. What does that mean for you in your life, for Neil Johnson, like on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis? Where are you creating content? Who is it for? How does that happen?
1: Yeah, um, I guess the background to that question would be, uh, I actually, I wanted to do film school and I, it was when I watched Lord of the Rings and I don't know if you've seen the extended edition, but there's like all of these DVDs of the making of, and it was ever since I watched those that I was just, I was fascinated by the worlds and the stories and what you were able to do. And so I had the pull to it, but I also felt like I wanted to do like some sort of Bible college or something kind of in the Christian side of it. And one of my friends told me about uh, Hillsong College Mm -hmm. and how they have this program where you can go and learn film and media and also there's like this theology and, you know, doctrine courses and that kind of thing. And so I was like, oh, this is perfect. It's in Australia. I'm in. And so when I went there, uh, part of my internship with the church was telling stories for the weekend testimonies. Um, and it was basically, you know, it's a two minute clip about someone who, you know, something happened in their life. And, uh, it's, you know, shining a light on a campaign, like uh, stuff, the bus, which is like the Christmas initiatives or, you know, whatever it was. And so, um, I was really drawn to that kind of storytelling in which it was all about people and really felt a pull to the documentary side of things and so you know fast forward all these years I think I've really found my niche in that it's cause-based storytelling it's um I mean I tried like some commercial stuff here and there but I just I didn't want to wake up in the morning and go to work when it was like you know, for a product or a brand. I just felt like there was no meaning. But when it was always connected to a cause or someone doing something to help other people, I found myself highly motivated and I found myself passionate about, you know, getting involved. And so um, today that looks like uh, mostly A21. Mm -hmm. Um, I help with a lot of the film side of things, the storytelling. And ultimately, I guess the way I see it is that not everyone has the opportunity to, you know, jump on a plane and go to the other side of the world and right, see firsthand right. what's happening on the front lines. But I can kind of be that in between who I, you know, fly somewhere, I capture a story, I learn about what's happening, I try and tell it in a way that that it makes sense and that people can connect with what's going on and understand the work. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it really is about providing information and providing um, people with the understanding of, look, there's, there's a real problem in this world. Like with A21, it's obviously, um, anti-human trafficking. Mm -hmm. And so human trafficking is a massive issue globally. And I know on some of your episodes, you're going to be talking about this more and have been talking about it. And so it really is kind of helping people understand, well, how does trafficking work? Um, what is it that someone like you or I could actually do about it? I mean, it seems so overwhelming often when you, you talk about the numbers and the stats and in whatever angle that you look at it from. But I think for me, it's really kind of helping people meet the one Mm -hmm. that it impacts. And at A21, we always talk about, you know, our work is focused on the one. And I think that's true on many levels. And I guess I, I found myself very drawn to the nonprofit space and very drawn to causes because I can fully get behind the work that's being done. And it feels like in some small way, I'm able to contribute more than say, if I was just to donate or just to, you know, volunteer, it feels like this is kind of my niche of I'm able to connect, um, a larger audience with the work that's being done so that more impact and more change can happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, and like I mentioned in the intro, I met you through working together on the A21 comms team. And so I had the project management side of it, of just helping put the pieces together so that we could create whatever the content or the project was. And then you and your team and a lot of the incredible contractors I got to know very minimally, but loved, loved, loved through that role were the ones who were actually putting the photos and the images and the b-roll and the sound and all of these things together to create these stories and like you said we work for A21 and that is a very hope-filled organization but it is looking at the face of a really difficult problem and a very heartbreaking reality so when it comes to portraying difficult narratives like those involving human trafficking how do you and your team create content that is hopeful in the midst of the hard like how do you tiptoe the line, to stay authentic to the reality and to help people see the perspective of what's really happening, but uh, to say that there is hope and that we're creating these narratives so that people can understand that there can be a tipping point. How do you navigate that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a challenge because you, you have, um, it's you know, we talk about like, is it a problem to solve or attention to manage? And I think in, in this instance, it's always one of those things where it's attention to manage because you are dealing with the reality of, you know, all sorts of abuse and, um, really heavy weighty issues. And I think it's unfair to make it lighter or try and make Mm -hmm. it not so serious or kind of pull the gravity out of it. But at the same time, you don't want to just give people so many facts that they're crippled and feel like they're unable to take action because, um, you know they're not able to process or understand right. you know um what what they could possibly do about something so horrible, and it's like no one wants to hear about these things and feel helpless or feel like nothing can be done. And so I think it's always looking for the light and it's always looking for the beauty and I think what's amazing in our work is just how resilient the survivors mm-hmm. are and how resilient people are. I think it's incredible when, you know, you get to meet some of these people face to face and hear what they've been through but see how that has not defined them, that that they are not mm. the sum of what they've been through. And I think that just points to just how incredible the, you know, the individuals are who have gone through such um horrible, unspeakable, you know, realities. But to me, mm. Um, there is always hope because, I mean, we've seen it. We've seen it a thousand times over. We've seen individuals who have gone through, you know, all kinds of difficult uh, situations in their life and have come out on the other side and have, you know, dreams and they have desires for their life and are seeing those come to be. And so I think when you see how it's happened for another person, it can kind of give you this hope for how it could happen for someone else and to me i think in storytelling it's always that that balance it's that tension that we've been talking about of how do i portray this in a way that doesn't diminish uh the weight and right. the the pain and what was endured but also it doesn't um it doesn't make me as a viewer or whoever the audience is disconnect from it just because it's too gruesome or it's mm-hmm. too heavy and so i think Um, There is always attention to manage, and I'm just going to share a little story that might help you understand, but I feel like I've always kind of been thrown in the deep end on sort of the heavier topics. The first documentary that I ever made was on the subject of FGM. And so Mm -hmm. if you don't know what that is, you can look it up. I'm not going to go into all the details on here. We want to keep this podcast for everyone. Um,
0: Right.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right? Um, But essentially, uh, it was with the organization Compassion, who does amazing work all around the world of essentially you as an individual, wherever you are in the world can sponsor a child. And essentially you give like 40 to 50 bucks a month. And that goes to providing, um, an incredible amount of support to these kids all over the world. Um, but mostly in impoverished countries. And so it partners through the local church and, you know, essentially in, in the situation that uh, I was able to go and film and it was actually in Kenya. And so it's connected to the local church and there's, you know, uh, social workers and a team of people who sort of help wherever the need is. And so in this particular situation, we are filming a story about a couple different girls. Two of these girls were in the Compassion program and were educated around the realities of FGM and how it was illegal and they have the right to say no and was sort of empowered, you know? And this other girl who wasn't part of the program who didn't understand her rights. And so there was sort of this contrast between both of these worlds in which there is those who are being reached with the, the amazing work that this organization is doing and then the ones who were still waiting. And it's interesting because whenever you talk about an issue like FTM or human trafficking and right. all of these heavy, you know, weighty issues that we have in our world, sometimes I think it's really easy to get judgmental and to think, oh gosh, who could ever do that to their child? Who could ever do this? But you have to understand that in a cultural context, that was the most loving thing to do. Like, mm-hmm. I was able to film the mother who had her daughter undergo it. And she was saying, I did what my mother did to me as what you do. Because if you want your daughters mm-hmm. to be able to get married and to have a good husband, this is what you do. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's this concept around, you know, we have a purity culture, which looks like abstinence possibly for us. But in other cultures, it, looked different. And so I think I had to rewire how I understood culture Mm -hmm. and how I understood that. And I think that's the power of story. The power of story is that it's easy for me to judge you from where I sit, but until I've actually walked a mile in your shoes, as we talk about, then I don't necessarily understand the complexities, but also understand the nuance of culture and how this mother was trying to do the absolute best for her daughter, but wasn't educated on what that was. And so I think storytelling can play a part in educating people, but it's also playing a part in, you know, sort of a holistic transformation through sponsorship. And seeing, you know, this girl who, you know, we filmed her story later get sponsored and just a transformation that, you know, came about for her was really was really moving. It was really special. But I think we can't shy away from the difficult conversations. I think. Um, we owe it to our shared humanity to open up and to, to be honest, but it doesn't mean that it's an easy conversation. It doesn't mean it's an easy topic to talk about. I was like, here, I'm this, you know, 20 something young dude who's uh, been thrown into the deep end here on directing. And now I have to figure out how to shape a story in a way that is going to be played at a women's conference that doesn't desensitize um, the issue, but also portrays it in a way that is really positive and can bring about transformation. I think that's the goal. And that was a really long way to try and answer your question, but (laughs) maybe there's something in
0: there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that's perfect because I think that's really the gold behind it is that... In you capturing these stories, in you helping produce or direct or whatever edit these stories, you are coming face to face with the realities, but you're also coming face to face with the solutions. And by seeing both of those things, it is inspiring you as your own self, as your own human, and it's almost fueling that creative energy to want to tell the story to the best possible narrative so that individuals in that women's conference or wherever are going to be interacting with the storyline are going to really get an honest picture of what was happening, but they're also going to catch that same hope that you have, that there is a solution and that there is hope. And so I think that that makes a lot of sense that even in the darkest, most difficult aspects of humanity or these problems facing us globally, that we're finding these little storylines of hope and that those actually end up being the more Powerful part to the story than even just like the raw facts of what you're capturing.
1: 100%. And I think the context that helps me understand that is understanding life through people's perspective. I think one of the books that I read early on in my filmmaking, you know, storytelling education was a book called The Situation in the Story. And essentially, if you break it down in its simplest form, it's the situation is what happened, it's the facts, mm-hmm. it's X happened then Y. But a situation only becomes a story when there's a point of view. And if you think about like you're at a, a stoplight and the someone runs the light and something happens, like the fact is a car hit another car, that's the situation. But what it means depends on which car you're in and where you're sitting and from what vantage point you're viewing. And I think when, you begin to see things from other people's perspectives, and what it means to them. You realize that we have way more in common than we do apart. You know, we right. have much more in common than, um, than than which we don't. And so, I think for me, storytelling at its essence is about helping people see from other perspectives. And when you realize that, you know, there's tangible, measurable change that you can bring by whether it's donating or getting involved and, you know, taking action in your community, like it does, it gets me excited. And Mm -hmm. I really believe in these causes, which is why I think it's so easy for me to tell these stories and get behind it because I have seen firsthand the change that is possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I have too. And I mean, I just, think about the multitudes of people who you might not never, you might not ever get the chance this side of eternity to see that have heard a story that you've told that moved them and compelled them to take an action. I mean, that's always the goal is that there's either this certain level of awareness or there's a certain level of action that's really tangible and feasible for the person on the other side of the screen to take. And I, I can only imagine how many of those people are on the planet right now that you will never have the ability to know or even comprehend that have been moved by these stories. And so I just appreciate the work that you do. And like I said, through the role that I had on the comms scene the last couple of years, I had a much better understanding of how much goes into taking these ideas from just a concept or an idea all the way into a full fruition. And I mean, someone who we haven't mentioned yet on this podcast is Robin, and she is just... Just like you're co-laborer in this storytelling space, and you guys are the most insane people I've ever met because we would literally release this story that you guys have been working on for a whole year, like 365 days. We just got it finalized, released it into the public, and while it is airing to everyone else, you guys are already in another room, like brainstorming what the next year is going to be. Like, you guys are just so brilliant, creative genius in that way that it always blew my mind that you're always kind of thinking through the next thing and the next thing, and And so with that, like, what is that process like for those of us who are not necessarily in the behind the scenes of seeing how a story is made? Like, how would you describe to us the concept and ideas and steps to producing a type of story, maybe a video or a documentary or a piece like that?
1: Yeah, I mean, gosh, Robin is amazing and I yeah. absolutely love the team that I get to work with, be it contractors or within A21 um, and the other organizations that I work with occasionally. And to be honest, it's different for each story. I was mm-hmm. trying to, to find the commonalities as you were, you know, articulating yeah. some of it, like, w- what is it? And I think uh, for me personally, it's always looking at, okay, what is the reality what is, you know, what is it that someone is experiencing? Mm-hmm. And then what is the solution? And I think for me early on, when I came into this space of particularly human trafficking, I felt like my videos and the stories that I was telling were meant to uh, sort of stop human trafficking and put an end to it. Like that was the goal, right? Like we're our mission statement is to abolish slavery everywhere right. forever. So like everything I have to do is about ending human trafficking. But then I realized, like, h- how do you actually end human trafficking? And to me, I've sort of had a pivot and a shift over the last couple of years. And I've kind of, in speaking to my audience, I'm every project that I enter into, I ask myself the question, what do I want the audience to think, feel, and do? That's mm-hmm. the starting place. So when it comes to think it's a, okay, cool. I want them to understand the scale of it. I want them to understand um, that this can happen in your own community. This isn't a third world problem issue. This is something, you know, speaking of human trafficking that happens everywhere. And it may look different than what you expect, but what do I want you to think? Well, okay, but then what do I want you to feel? I want you to feel the weight of it, but I also want you to feel the hope. I want you to feel like your actions matter. And that's ultimately, you know, what we're moving towards, which is what do I want you to do? And I think, yes, financially, we always need the resources to do what we do. And it's so important that people give. But more than that, I actually want people to take action, whatever that looks like in their own situation. And so for me, the pivot wasn't a, hey, I want you to end human trafficking and to help us do that. So specifically, it was actually a, I want you to take action. It was a shift from- Hmm. I need you to, you know, show up and uh, prevent this from happening in the first place to, if you were to play your part, we could actually make a difference. And it's that kind of that famous quote of, you know, all it takes for evil to prevail is for good people to stand to decide, to simply do nothing. And so I realized more recently that anytime I'm working with a nonprofit, the problem isn't uh, dirty water. The problem isn't human trafficking. The problem isn't poverty in and of itself. The problem is actually your inaction. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that you're allowing it to continue when there's enough resource on the planet for everyone to be fed, for everyone to have access to clean water, for no one to be exploited for their bodies or labor. It's a matter of distribution. It's a matter of rights. It's a matter of, you know, we have enough resource. We have the ability to allow people opportunities to, to work and to dream and to live their best lives. But there's certain things that are getting in the way. And that's what we call an injustice, right? And so I think when we're speaking of, you know, human trafficking and uh, bringing about transformation, it really comes back to how is the actions of you, of individuals like you and me going to make a difference And how can we mobilize people to actually get involved, whether it's Walk for Freedom, whether it's hosting the broadcast and helping educate people in your community around the realities of human trafficking and how to stay safe online or whatever it might be. Um, It's really important that we understand that inaction is the problem and your action is actually the solution. That's what we've seen time and time again.
0: I mean, come on, let's just call it a rap. Let's just play that over and over. I <laughs> feel like that's like literally the essence for why you and I and a lot of our team and the, even the activists and people who aren't on our full-time team do what they do. And yeah, I don't think I could have said it any better. And I just appreciate the way that you're helping us understand what the definition of injustice is and how the work that you and your team are doing specifically is in, in essence trying to combat that Inactivity, in as much as it is trying to eliminate the injustice. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think I could have said it any better than that. That was perfect.
1: You're very kind.
0: No, I'm very honest. I, I'm telling you the truth. That's, that's absolutely the truth. And even when I think about you and some of the resume that I know that you have, uh, what would you tell us is a favorite story that you've told so far? Tell us like what the project was or even a couple that just come to your mind that you're like, there was just something special about this project.
1: Gosh, there's, there's so many, honestly, that I, I feel like every story Every individual has a story and every Mm -hmm. story deserves to be heard. And I find people incredibly interesting. I can sit and listen to people's stories for hours um, simply because I think human life, like I think life is interesting. I think people's ability to how they see life um, is fascinating. Their own experiences, um, morality, like there's so many worldviews out there that I'm fascinated by, I think reality is often much stranger than fiction. And there's things that happen that to me, I look back in and I say, did that really happen? Is this (laughs) like even possible? Is this (laughs) the world we live in? Um, But some of my favorite stories, man, there's a few that come to mind, but I think in order to honor where I've come from, there's one in particular that jumps out and it's the story of a guy named Michael. And, um, he's sort of, uh, family friend. Like he, he's kind of like my adopted uncle, if you will. He was about the age of my dad and, um, grew up growing up in the Dominican Republic. He would come down for a week and, you know, do some mission stuff and hang out and sort of knew my family through friends. And so I, as you know, in my young teenage years, got to know him and just really admired and looked up to him because he was just hilarious. He was so bold and audacious and would say anything that came to mind had no problem telling someone whatever he thought, whether he knew them or not. And was just kind of one of those people where I was like, gosh, I wish I had that kind of courage and boldness. And um, he was actually the first, he was actually the person who brought me from the US, my first DSLR camera, which is what really Mm -hmm. started my sort of photography, Mm -hmm. videography uh, journey at a new level. And so A lot of it began when he brought that camera down to the Dominican and I started, you know, taking photos and making little videos. And it just was sort of the beginning of my career at a whole nother level. And I sold my drum set to be able to afford it. And so I left my music career behind and said, I will be a filmmaker and a photographer and I'm gonna chase stories the rest of my life. And here we are. Um, However, it was fast forward, gosh, I went to Australia. I'd been working for many years. for Hillsong and then had felt like my time was coming to an end, decided to go freelance. And in between um, finishing up my time at Hillsong Channel, I sort of had this lull where I was like, okay, um, I don't have any work. What am I doing? And um, it was at that point where um, I heard that Michael was actually diagnosed with stage four cancer. And um, it was really hard because I mean, he's someone that I've cared for and, you know, loved as family for, for many years. And uh, the doctors had given him, you know, a couple months to live essentially. Mm-hmm. And so I reached out and said, Hey man, well, you want to do one more trip to the DR. And uh, I haven't been there in a while and we can go see my family and kind of see, you know, revisit and have, you know, walk down memory lane, kind of see some of the people and places that meant a lot to us while I was growing up and that he sort of shared in common with. And so I wanted to document this though. And so my initial thought was, gosh, I need to get like a red camera Mm -hmm. and I need to have this massive, you know, setup and I got to do it really proper. And I'm going to do a whole documentary and kind of make it epic. And then I just felt like the Lord was brought the story of Gideon to mind. And this idea, if you're not familiar with the story is that less of the right thing or less of the right people is actually more. And so it went from, you know, this army of yet 10,000 plus people to an army of 300 people. And they were able to accomplish with those 300 people um, more than potentially the army of 10,000 because they were already outnumbered. And so what that meant in storytelling terms was instead of bringing my bigger cameras and renting, you know, expensive red cameras or whatever it was that I thought I needed to do in order to be able to capture this story well, I ended up buying a GoPro Hmm. and decided to shoot the entire thing on a GoPro because I said, well, if the story's there, then it doesn't really matter. It's about what you're seeing and feeling. And it's less about, you know, the image quality and all these other distracting things. And like, just to be really practical, a red camera takes like 40 seconds to power up. So if like yeah. something funny's happening, you're going to miss that moment. Whereas a GoPro right. in like two seconds, it's re- recording from when you hit the button. And so I flew down to the Dominican and, um, Michael flew in the next day, we picked him up at the airport and we basically just spent a week um, hanging out. And at one point I sat him down and kind of interviewed him and got his thoughts on life. And what I found was so fascinating, I think this is maybe why it stuck with me so closely, is when someone is coming um, towards the end of their life or they're faced with this question mark of, will life as I know it continue? There's a real sense of clarity and there's a real sense of what really matters in life And I think I was able to be close enough with him in in proximity and in hearing his story that I really got an insight from a guy who had lived his entire life. He's married. He has grandkids. He's been divorced. He's been through it all. He's been through bankruptcy. He's been through success. He's like, he's lived life. He's weathered the seasons. And looking him back on it all, knowing that he may not have tomorrow, these are the things that matter to him. And I was sort of able to capture the essence of that on camera in interview and um, kind of to make the long story short, we ended up filming a piece where he's like, well, if you're watching this, I'm in paradise. And he kind of did this message that he wanted to be played at his funeral if uh, he wasn't healed. And essentially I was like, either I'm filming a story of a guy who's going to get a miracle and we're going to have that documented or this is going to be a legacy piece for his kids and for those who loved him. And it was one of the most powerful things for me as a believer, because he actually goes on to like have an altar call where he invites people from the dead, essentially, right, to come and join him in paradise, to come and spend eternity with him. And um, I actually wasn't able to be at the service, at the memorial, because I was over in South Africa, busy meeting my wife. I didn't know that <laughs> at the time, but um, I was on the A21 10-year film project where I was, you know, we went to seven countries or whatever and was captioning the work that A21 does. And so um, he did uh, end up You know, a few months later, passing and going to be with the Lord, and they played this sort of 17-minute film that I had created of this week down in the Dominican at his service. And
0: I have the chills. That's insane.
1: (laughs) I wasn't able to be there, but the—I mean—it got a couple thousand views on Facebook, and kind of, you know, people were sharing it around. And I got a couple people who wrote in who, actually, I guess from what I understood, that was like their moment where they're like, Mm. "I believe this. Like, this was so real for him." And just the relationship that he had with God, like you couldn't make it up. Like he had such a peace. He had such a strength, despite the impossibility. And, you know, it's like the doctors come and tell him, you know, you've got stage for cancer. And he's like, well, this is good news. And they're like, how is this good news? But like, yeah, how his is this perspective, possibly good? yeah, it was so foreign to what you might imagine it could be. And I think that's just the beauty of, you know, when you are in a relationship with your creator, and you know in your heart, and you have this piece that surpasses all understanding. But um, I think that to me is probably one of the most uh, special projects because it's so close to home. I wasn't getting paid to do it. I did it because I really Mm -hmm. cared. It was um, a film that I can go back and watch that, you know, one day I might show to my children and talk about, you know, Mm -hmm. this man who had a tremendous positive impact on my life. And like, I get emotional just thinking about it, but Mm -hmm. like, it's really special to be able to capture a moment of someone's life, someone's story, and to tell it in a way that maybe someone who's never met him could meet an aspect of him and see an aspect of life or understand something about the meaning and purpose of life um, in a greater way. And I think that to me is kind of my contribution to the world as an artist, to be able to give people not just a sense of myself, because obviously we always put ourselves into the stories we tell. But really to put a light on all of these incredible stories of people who are out there living their lives, but may never have an article written about them, may never be on the Nikki Dutton Moore podcast, you know, <laughs> yeah. but somehow um, their lives can touch all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's just Profound and beautiful and I can understand what kind of an honor that is and I can kind of comprehend that on a very small level because even though I haven't been able to tell that chapter in someone's story I heard someone reference like the end of your life is the evening of your life and I just think that's really beautiful and there is like Mm -hmm. you said there's just a certain kind of clarity that happens there I haven't got to tell those stories yet through my mediums but even having conversations with people like you or some of the other guests that have come on the podcast, it's just so humbling because you're getting a glimpse into the way this person works and the things that move them to emotion and the things that come to mind when you ask them a question that this is top of mind. It's, it's yeah. really astounding and it's really humbling and it's really interesting and fascinating and beautiful. And I think it just creates this really compelling picture for what makes up a person and whether the you know title of a podcast or the theme of a story you're telling is one specific narrative there's just all these other little pieces that kind of come together in the midst of it and give you a more robust understanding of that individual which it sounds like is what you got to do about Michael and for his story which is just insane and I just I love that you got to tell that story
1: Yeah it was really special and we actually recorded a couple of clips he did a personal message for you know, his mm. uh, ex-wife and different grandkids and stuff. And I actually waited wow. for one year to send it to them. And then yeah. I, sort of a year out, I sent it to them and it was really impactful to kind of, I can't you know, imagine. have this this message from this person that you love so much Um from the other side, if you will. But no, it, it's yeah. definitely one of the greatest honors in my life to be able to tell mm. his story and to feel like I was entrusted to, to walk in those evening hours, like yeah. you were saying, with someone. It just... I learned so much about life and what matters to me through him.
0: Hmm. Wow. That is so beautiful. And I know that you've mentioned this a couple times in our episode. I come from a Christian perspective and I know that you do as well. How do you feel like the Lord or the Holy Spirit affects the way that you see the world and then the way that you tell those stories?
1: That's a beautiful question. And to be honest, uh, my worldview, I think, gives such an answer to that, in that I actually—if you know—we all have metaphors for life because we don't understand mm-hmm. what life is; we only understand what life is like, and it, you can't fully put your finger on and say, life is this, because it, it's beyond that it's, it goes, you know, there's too many layers to it, but we can say, well, life is like a game. And if like, if I was like, it's a game, it's well, it's about winning or, you know, there's all these metaphors that stories mm-hmm. and films give us. But to me, if you were to ask me what life is, life is a story and a story has a beginning, a middle and an end. It has a world, it has characters and it's built around conflict. And it's interesting, it's interesting because when you look at like the hero's journey, which is essentially, you know, this idea of a story arc that we see throughout all of, you know, our stories individually, but also mm-hmm. in the tales we tell, um, there's this idea of, you know, there's an interesting beginning, an unexpected middle and a satisfying end. And we're wired to all want that in life. And I think in my worldview, there's a story. And that story is actually one of a creator who created a creation, you know, the world that we live in and the people in it. And he desires relationship and he created it out of love, through love, for love. And ultimately, he's a storyteller. And You know, there's this obscure scripture somewhere in the New Testament where it talks about how Jesus never spoke plainly to the people, but only ever spoke in parables or stories.
0: Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I think there's something to that and that meaning can't be understood simply by saying the scientific definition of it. Meaning is actually only ever, I would say, how would I put it? Meaning is, or story is the only vehicle in which meaning can travel. Mm-hmm. And we're wired for meaning. We don't want to just know what happened. We want to know why it happened. What does this mean to me? Um, why is this important? What is the purpose? And so ultimately, like, I believe that purpose is only ever found in the mind of the creator. You don't understand the purpose of a baseball bat. Like if I was to go and create a baseball bat and um, I, you know, all of the aerodynamics and the curvature is perfectly created so that it can swing through the air and hit the ball for maximum impact, Right. But if I show up in some cannibalistic tribe on the other side of the world and bring this bat, and I don't tell them the purpose, they're going to find a very different purpose for that bat. Right, right. Right. So to me, it's always about what is it that was the purpose in the creator's mind? What was the original intent? And I think there's an original intent, and original purpose for the world that we live in, but also the stories we tell. So for me, when it comes to partnering with the Holy Spirit and um, the stories that he tells, I feel like it's one and the same. It's like we're living in his story. It's history, right? But at the same time, he allows us to be players in his world. He allows us to be characters in his world. But honestly, there's been so many stories. Uh, one that comes to mind, I, it was actually for the A21 Global Broadcast last year. I was flying to Nashville, where we were going to film this uh, story called Secrets. And essentially, Um, it's about a young girl who is recruited for ultimately sex trafficking, but it's recruited through Instagram. And, um, essentially she's like a young 15 year old, you know, dancer. And, um, this girl who's working as a recruiter, who's being controlled by a pimp, um, is recruiting her via social media by befriending her and, you know, sending her all of these messages of, oh, you're so sweet and you're incredibly talented. And I have this amazing, you know, uh, career that I could help you get. I could make you really famous. You just need to work with the right people. I have someone who could, you know, take you to the next level of your career and kind of builds time over trust through Instagram and through social media until eventually there's a meeting point where she's, you know, uh, kidnapped if you will. Mm -hmm. But, um, I was showing up to Nashville to film this story and I rocked up to the airport and um, my friend was going to pick me up at one point, but he had to actually do some more logistics for the shoot. So wasn't able to. And so I was just going to Uber to the hotel. No big deal. But I walked into the terminal and I just had this sense of, okay, you need to rent a car. And I was like, okay, cool. I can rent a car. And then as I went down to the desk, like to, you know, find a rental, it was a, you need to rent a Jeep. And I was like, okay, I need to You're rent like, a okay, Jeep. this is
0: getting a bit this pricier. <laughs> is,
1: this is getting more expensive. I was like, why do I need a Jeep? I just need yeah. to get to the hotel, right? And so I uh, went up to the desk and I'm gonna be here, what, two days? It's like a three-day rental or something. And the guy's like, yeah, it's gonna be like $780. And I was like, excuse me?
0: Yeah, it like hits you in your chest. I mean, because rental cars have been so expensive the last couple of years So as well.
1: expensive. Yeah, so I'm like, okay, I'm definitely making this up. This, why would I need a Jeep? this is so over the top and I'm not going to build this to a 21. Like this is my personal, you know, expense. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. Um, fine, let's, uh, let's do it. And so I rented the Jeep and I mean, it was fun to drive, but I couldn't get this <laughs> out of my head. Did I just spend $800 to have a Jeep that's going to get me, you know, to my hotel and back yeah,
0: from point A to B, that's it.
1: But had this sense that that's what I needed to do. So fast forward, uh, I show up to the Jeep and it's bright orange. I mean, like orangeish red, like so orange, like incredibly orange. And I was like, okay, cool. Like it's a cool Jeep too. And it's very bright. Great. I'm more of like anyone who knows anything about me being like production and behind the scenes. I'm usually like more of the blacks and grays yeah. kind of guy, right?
0: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So I was like, okay, cool. We're going bright colors here. No worries.
0: (laughs) You pull up to the side and people are like, are you okay, Neil? What's happening with you? Are you having a midlife crisis? Is this your
1: midlife crisis? Exactly. (laughs) And so I'm like, I'm just rolling with it. I needed to get the Jeep. We got the Jeep, spent the money. It is what it is. Swallow hard, move on. Well, fast forward again, and we end up telling this story. And one of the scenes in the film secrets is where we portray the girl who is in sort of like this brothel area herself and she's doing texting and we're really establishing in here how she's being controlled by a pimp and that she herself is a victim. So even though she's recruiting other girls, it's part of what she's being forced to do. And so it's important for the audience to understand that that's often how it works. It's not just say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm here and I'm excited to, you know, find other girls and recruit them. It's like, no, it's actually they're punished if they don't meet their quota, which is horrible to think about. But um, that entire space and that scene, um, the director of photography, a good friend, he actually lit it like this orangish reddish color to kind of send that color. And I didn't or send that message and I didn't think anything of it. But then towards the end of the day, we decided we needed a scene where, you know, the girl actually in the story gets picked up by this um, girl who's been recruiting her. And I was like, oh, great. Well, she can just use my Jeep, like the rental, right? And she can pull up in that. And what was so amazing is is I didn't realize this till we got into post-production, but the color that we created for that room where sort of represented, you know, the trafficking situation was the exact same color as the Jeep that I had rented. And so what that meant was when that girl who was, you know, recruiting this other vulnerable um, teenager showed up she was bringing that entire world with her by that color coordination and it's just a subtlety it's just this minor little thing in a film but it really connected this idea between this innocent young person who is being deceived and tricked into trafficking to this world of exploitation and it was done through color which is you know one of the tools that we have in our arsenal of filmmaking and so I looked back on that and I was like, wow, like, okay, cool. I wrote this story. I directed it and all, but I'm not that good. And I'm not that smart (laughs) to be able to envision and see this. But it was one of those moments where it was like, I just had to partner with what the Lord was doing. And sure, I spent some money, but I would happily spend that money again, because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it told the story in such a powerful way that... Uh, I completely would have missed if it wasn't for the help that he gave me
0: yeah well and I think I resonate with that so deeply because I think that that does two things I think that it is pretty incredible when you know that backstory which I'll include the link to the secrets video in the show notes you can see it it is exact I mean it's kind of mind blowing the color matching that happens and now that we know the backstory behind that of how seeing that color subconsciously brings that environment into this new scene it is so powerful so that absolutely It was accomplished through that, but also it increased your confidence even more so in your ability to discern the Holy Spirit's guidance. And now the next time when you are standing in an airport and you're looking at the rental car and you're like, I don't know, or, you know, insert whatever situation here, you can remember this scenario where you did take that chance. And honestly, for a matter of hours, a day even, you didn't know why and you didn't really have a great. Uh, explanation for that, but then ultimately you saw how the Lord was able to use that. So it did both things. It was more compelling and powerful to have this very seemingly insignificant aspect to the story, the car color at this end scene to pull up and to match that environment. That was powerful, but it's also powerful for you personally to be able to remember that as um, kind of a mile marker that like, yeah, the Lord showed up and maybe I should just tune just a little bit more and be open to saying yes to things, even if I don't know the full picture at the end.
1: Yeah. And I love your articulation of that because, you know, it was a risk. Was I going to spend the money? Was I, you know, it it seemed illogical. And I think sometimes that is the the journey of faith in that it doesn't always make sense in the moment. It's why we call it faith. And Mm -hmm. I think to me, one of the best ways that I've understood it is, I always want to see, I always want to know, but, uh, by definition, once you see it, it's too late for faith. Right. Right. And I think that that's one of those things where it's like, people say those things that it's like, faith is spelled R-I-S-K, risk, you know, whatever. Mm. And it's like, okay, cool. That's a little cheesy, but there's also (laughs) a layer of truth to it in that. Yeah. There's never been a time where something I've done something that has some sort of significant moment that comes later that didn't require me to feel a bit like an idiot for a while, yeah. to feel incredibly foolish and be like, "What the heck did you do? Like me and my wife, like, I'm try- we're trying to be responsible with funds. Like mm-hmm. I, I mean, like mm-hmm. I watched Dave Ramsey on Instagram, like, I know I shouldn't <laughs> be doing this, yeah. yet <laughs> allowing yourself... to to take risks. And I think that's the beauty of story is that there's an adventure waiting for all of Mm -hmm. us to be had, but greatness and thrill and excitement um, can look like anxiety and fear and (laughs) foolishness at the same time, because it's, you know, it's what you make of it. And I think I just want to live the kind of life where, I mean, I was just listening to the episode of you and Scott where it's like, you take the risks, you kind of just go for it and say like, gosh, like, Sure I have something to lose but like what's the worst thing that could happen if yeah. it doesn't turn out like I want and I think there's just so much freedom in um in living on an adventure where anything could happen and it probably will
0: mm. Well, I love that. And I mean, I think that just kind of summarizes this whole conversation of us getting to know you as an individual, the mediums and the storytelling and the art that you produce. And then you even gave a little shout out to one of our favorite people. I say our, cause she's mine and yours, your beautiful wife, Shannon, who I know is listening to this and will be like the number one fan. But I think that, yeah, I think that that just summarizes well all the things that you've shared so far. And I just appreciate you taking the time to kind of pull back the curtain on the production world, like we talked about before we hit record. You are someone who normally is on the backside of these productions. You're mixing the audio, you're, you know, pitching. Very concepts. comfortable
1: behind the camera. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah. And you did a phenomenal job. I mean, I told you I was like, maybe this is your big break, but I'm just glad that I get to introduce whoever listens to this episode to someone in my life who I call friend that I've seen tell some really powerful stories so thank you for what you do but also thank you for being Scott and I's friend because we just love you and we've seen these things that you've said during the last hour or so be true in your everyday life as well so I just really admire that about you